It is good to be with you. We are, I'm so glad that we are back in church and that we are uh, getting back to normal and things are getting back to routine-ish, I I suppose. (laughs) Uh, But it's good to be with you. We are pressing forward in our series going through the Gospel of Mark. We are in uh, chapter 14. This morning, I don't want to scare you, but I want to cover verses 27 all the way through the end of the chapter, which is through verse 72. So it's a lot of verses. Uh, But I don't want to that scary. We're not going to go uh, slowly. I I hope to go through this. But I want you to see this entire scene because I do think it's one scene to keep together in terms of what occurs here. And this text to me, uh, this Time in the, the, the last days, the last hours really of Jesus' life here on earth. I think we have recorded for us here especially uh, some of the most emotional uh, moments in these last hours. And it begins with what we read as our scripture text for this morning, which was in verse 27. With this ominous warning, this really uh, foreboding statement from Jesus to his apostles. Where he comes right out and declares that every single one of his apostles, this night even, will be made to stumble. They'll be offended by what happens during the course of this night. Now, again, think about how these apostles must feel at this moment. Because their teacher, Jesus, has been really acting quite weird up to this point. They've had this uh, Passover meal. Uh, It started with their teacher washing their feet. And then in the middle of the Passover, he calls uh, the Passover elements, the bread and the cup, his new covenant, his body and his blood. Kind of odd. And then he even declares during the middle of this meal that one of those who is around the table is going to betray him to death. And now he comes out and says that all of you are going to be made to stumble in the next few hours. You have to know that this word stumbled literally means that. It means to be offended. It means actually to make it more sort of powerful in your minds. It means to be scandalized. That's literally what he's saying. That because of me, because of the things that are going to happen to me, and the things that are going to be said about me, you, all of you, you 11 faithful who have been with me, are going to be scandalized this night. That they would feel The outrage of what's going to happen in the next few hours. His closest followers would be uh, made to see just the abject scandal of the cross. And that's what I want to speak to you this morning. In four movements, I want to kind of show you this scandalous prelude to the cross. Because as you will see, it's just full, uh, not to keep using that word, it's just full of scandal. Full of outrage at how Jesus is treated, but also how his apostles react. So first, again, those verses, verses 27 through verse 31. We have for us this morning, the denial. The denial. Look at it again. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. I am always enamored by the Apostle Peter, especially throughout the Gospels as we have his life recorded for us, at least the early parts of his life. He is continually, at least for me, the apostle that I most often sympathize with or relate to or like to see myself in. uh, Often because he's putting his foot in his mouth. uh, Saying things probably before he thinks. He's very impulsive that way. 
He says things without really thinking about them first. He just lets whatever is in his head get out through his lips. <laughs> He's very confident. He's very, also I would say, stubborn. And I think often, as we've seen in the last couple chapters, Peter is a little bit naive too. He doesn't have the full picture of what Jesus is going to do and has made his mission here on earth. He doesn't have that in mind. Such is why even at, remember when Jesus first predicts his death on the cross. He says may it never be. You shouldn't have to die Jesus. Remember that from Mark chapter 8. But I think all of it. Peter's heart is in the right place. He, he loves Jesus. He doesn't want anything to happen bad to Jesus. And I think such is why when Jesus predicts this outrage and scandal that Peter would feel. That Peter would actually be a part of. He, uh, he speaks up so strongly. I, it won't be me, Jesus. You can count on me. Even if everyone else falls away. Even if everyone else stumbles. Even if everyone else is scandalized by what they say about you. I will not be. I am with you to the end, he says. I am with you now and I will be with you always, is Peter's promise. A promise he can't keep. But he was so sure of himself. Peter was so confident in his own ability to be faithful and loyal. He was so sure that he could live up to all of these expectations and pressures that would come on Jesus' followers. And I think that's one of the reasons why Jesus presses in to this sort of, um, this sort of self-confidence that Peter displays here. So he presses even further. Look at verse 30. Assuredly, I, I say to you. That today, even this night, that you won't just be scandalized, Peter. You won't just be outraged. You're going to outright deny me three times. Before even the sun rises, you're going to deny having ever known me, Peter. Can you imagine imagine that apostle if Jesus says those words to you? Can you imagine what was going through Peter's mind and heart? Peter, this one who had devoted so much to the Lord Jesus, is now being confronted with the words that what that he is going to deny Jesus three times. It must have cut him like a scalpel by a surgeon. It must have hurt him to the core. Jesus, why are you saying this? It doesn't make sense to him. These words of Jesus are strong words. Because this word denial is, is stronger than perhaps what you think. It actually means it's, he's refuting, he's dismissing any connection with Jesus. He is going to outright say and outright disown Jesus. He's not just going to say he doesn't know him. He's going to say he's never known him. And he wants nothing to do with him. That's what Jesus is predicting. Peter, you're going to disown me this night. You're going to be so scandalized by what happens. You're going to disown having ever had a part with me in ministry. This reply must have hurt Peter to the core of his being. Jesus is, though, taking aim, though, at that self-confidence that he's betraying. He's confident in himself. Peter is sure that he can make this happen. He can bring in the kingdom. He is confident and assured that he can do it. And such is why this must have seemed entirely ludicrous. Jesus, what are, what are you talking about? I'm not going to deny you. 
That's why he reasserts himself in verse 31. Notice how Mark includes that. But he spoke even more vehemently. He spoke even more with even more strong language. Even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I will not disown you. Even if I have to go to death with you, I will not reject you. I will not deny you. Jesus, no way. That will never happen. Jesus, no way. I will never deny you. You can sense Peter's frustration, can you not? You can sense he's just getting so frustrated. God, stop saying this. Jesus, stop saying these words. I will not deny you. I've been with you all of these years. I am sure to be with you now. He's trying to keep up that self-assurance that he has. He's, trying to, he's still trying to portray this self-assurance to Jesus. Jesus, this, is, this won't happen. Even if I have to die with you, I will die with you. And notice, the other apostles are here. They're listening to Jesus' words. I'm sure they're like, Peter, our leader? The, the main guy of our group, he's going to deny you. And they, uh, not to be outdone with, with Peter's sort of self-assurance, they speak up too. Notice it says, they all said likewise. They wanted to be sure that Jesus knew that if, if worse came to worse, if it came to dying with you, Jesus, we are all with you. We're on your side. Even in death, we're with you all the way. But what I find most fascinating, though, is that these, this kind of answer and response, or this question and response uh, here in this text, we don't have Jesus' response after the apostles speak up again. They speak up with strong language, as it says there, vehemently. They are wanting to press into Jesus' mind. We are not going to deny you. And yet we don't have Jesus' response to them. Regarding their resolve. It's left kind of open-ended. I have to imagine uh, in my own head that Jesus kind of gave them a knowing look. Like, we'll see. Just watch. Just wait a few more hours. Because little did they know at this point what was going to happen. As you're going to see in this text... The apostles are kind of oblivious to the events that are happening around them. We've kind of seen that throughout this gospel. That they aren't always aware of sort of the kingdom movement that's happening uh, right in front of their faces. They're kind of just in the moment, in the here and now. And here, in this darkest hour of the soul, I might say, as we're going to see in a few minutes. They're kind of oblivious to what's happening. They don't really have in view what Jesus wants them to have in view. And I imagine they're a little flustered at this point. Imagine the apostles are a little frustrated. He's Jesus, this guy that they've been with, who has been notoriously maligned by a lot of people around him, but they've stuck with him. And now he's ruined Passover. And now he's ruining this fellowship this evening by saying that you're all going to reject me. Again, he's... In the apostles' minds, Jesus is kind of a buzzkill. You're ruining this good moment, Jesus. And I imagine, though, I think it would take a step back and just think about being in the apostles' shoes. Because I think it would be really hard to be an apostle. 
I think, I, I think that we like to think, if I can say that, that it would be really easy because we'd be so close to Jesus and that we would have such close proximity and access to the Messiah all the time. But I think, in fact, that we would react almost exactly like they do. We would respond exactly like the disciples did all throughout this time that Jesus is on earth. We're looking back on them, uh, having seen and having believed, having the full revelation of God in the scriptures. They are in the moment with Jesus as he's fulfilling scripture. Would have been difficult. Not being able to see the things that Jesus wants them to see. He's always speaking in parables. (laughs) Speaking around things. Continually uh, they were failing to understand what Jesus was trying to show them. And notice here even in this moment they missed the good news. Did you catch it? Look again at verses 27 and 28. Jesus has been uh, pressing in and leaning into the fact that in a few short days that he is going to be given up unto death. And he says all of you will be made to stumble because of me. This night things are going to pick up. Are going to happen so to speak. He says for it is written. I will strike the shepherd. And the sheep will be scattered. And listen to this good news. But after that I will be raised. You're going to be scandalized. But guess what. I'm going to rise again from the dead. And they kind of missed that point. (laughs) You notice how they gloss over. The fact that Jesus has once again. Not only predicted his death. But predicted his resurrection once again. And in fact almost every time. In the gospel of Mark. Where Jesus comes out and speaks to his death. He will also speak to his resurrection too. He gives this good news statement. They're confronted here with this notion. That he's going to die. And yet they skip over that promise. And they focus only on the scandal. Notice Peter says. Even if all are made to stumble. I will not be. Even if all are scandalized, I won't be. They missed the good news. They were kind of oblivious to what Jesus was wanting to show them. Wanting to impress into their minds. And I think again. That's because they're more like us than probably we would like to admit sometimes. They're more like us in their stubbornness. With how they don't always catch what Jesus is doing. And they're just like us here. Because how often are we more uh, apt, more quick to respond to someone who is questioning our character? See, they're having their character called to the carpet, so to speak, by Jesus himself. You guys are going to reject me, and that's what they pick up on. They pick up on their character, their integrity, and their honor, so to speak, being called into question. And they have to speak up in defense of themselves. We will not, Jesus. You can count on us. And I think in that way, we're just like these apostles. We like to speak up in defense of our own character. Of our own faithfulness. Of our own righteousness. Of our own self-assured confidence. That we can be loyal. But as we will see in a few moments. Any ounce. Any smidgen of confidence. That we derive from ourselves. From our own abilities. Will only leave us weeping. That was the denial. Look next. In the next scene. In verse 32. This is what I've entitled. The trial. 
Because Mark hastily switches scenes, as he often does. He just likes to bounce around to different scenes as he moves his narrative forward. And now, as it says in verse 32, the Jesus and the 11 disciples are now in a place which was uh, named Gethsemane. This is a very important scene. This prayer in Gethsemane that Jesus lifts up to God the Father. It's a scene of great, immense trial for the Lord Jesus. But it's also, I would like to say this, it's also a scene of immense triumph on his part too. Because notice a few things. Gethsemane literally means an olive press. This, uh, this location at the foot of, Mount, of the Mount of Olives is actually a, a place where there was an olive press there and an olive orchard. And I think that's actually pretty fitting considering what happens in this scene. Because just like an olive is pressed and crushed in order to produce, uh, produce fresh oil, not to carry the metaphor too far, but so too is Jesus crushed, crushed and pressed here by the weight of what he's about to do. See, Gethsemane is the pressing and the crushing of Jesus with the weight and the burden of sin. But also, too, notice that this scene in Gethsemane is a garden. Gethsemane, at this point, is a garden. And whether or not the oil press was active uh, or not, uh, I'm not sure. But John, uh, in his gospel, tells us that this is a garden. A garden with which Jesus and his apostles were familiar with. That they were perhaps often resorting to whenever they would go to the Mount of Olives. For perhaps privacy, uh, perhaps to be in seclusion and to pray and to fellowship with one another. And what could be more fitting... Than a trial happening in a garden. What could be more poetic than the fate of the world coming down to what happens in a garden? I'm trying to be a little bit coy, but I'm saying it's a, it's a perfect picture of what has happened all the way back at the Garden of Eden. It is being repeated here. It's a picture, it's a poetic picture in in the fact that just unlike Adam in the Garden of Eden who disobeyed God and brought sin into the world, Jesus here in this Garden of Gethsemane is going to obey God and bring salvation into the world. You see, this is hinting at, again, we could get into a lot, I could digress a lot here, uh, but we could get into what Paul talks about in Romans 5. How Jesus is the second Adam. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. And how Adam disobeyed, Jesus fulfills. And how in one, all are condemned and are all unrighteous. In another one, in the second Adam, we are all made righteous. Because he obeys the Father. That's Romans 5. That's for another day. But here, Jesus is here in this garden. He is here in what I is very much... The dark night of the soul, as is often the phrase. But he goes here in verse 32 and 33. He leaves the eight behind. Notice it says, then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. So he leaves the eight. And it says, and he took Peter, James, and John with him. And he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He goes a little further. He leaves the three, it says. In verse 35, he went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed. That if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, 
but what you will. This confession from Jesus here in the garden, revolving around this cup and almost this resistance that seems to be at play here, has uh, stirred uh, untold amounts of questions and debates and and, and theological uh, conversations. What does Jesus mean by the cup? What is he really talking about? What, did Jesus really get, want to get out of the cross? Was he really doubting his father's will here in this moment? What, did this, what does this prayer really mean? And we're not going to spend a, a, a big digression here unpacking it. But I think in some ways our, our quest for sort of a definitive, really particular, specific answer um, here by what Jesus is meaning robs the scene of the emotional weight that I think it's meant to convey. Here again, you have Jesus, who is both God and man, keep that in mind, coming into this place, and the hour is at hand. The hour for which he has come his whole life. Like the hymn says, born to die upon Calvary. And that moment is pressing on his mind. His hesitation to have this cup taken away. I I do not think, and I will say, that it is not an indication that he wanted to somehow avoid the cross. He's not saying that he wants to kind of get out of what he has has come to do. Actually, I think this is showing us the emotion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is, yes, fully God and fully man at the same time. And here, the uh, incredible, infinite weight of what he was about to do is now coming on his heart and his mind and his soul. The task that he came incarnate for. The task by which God the Father became enfleshed and the word dwelt among us is here he's being crushed. Yes, like an olive under the weight and the burden that he is meant to carry his entire mission. Which was what? To bear the entire world's sin. To bear the weight of every single rebellion, every single disobedience, every single act of rejection, every single act of injustice, every single act of damnation, Jesus has come to put on himself. He's come to carry it on his own shoulders. So here you have Jesus. The God-man, as he is called oftentimes. Here, being pressed under the weight of bearing the full brunt of God's justice for sin. Here, he is actually, in part, uh, fulfilling the prelude to what we believe. Which is what? That there is therefore now no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he has borne it and taken all on himself. We believe that. We champion that. We, uh, we confess that with all of our hearts. That the forgiveness of God, uh, the forgiveness of sins which is preached in this gospel is a complete and total, utter forgiveness. Why? Because Jesus has paid it all. The condemnation is clear. It's taken off of you because Jesus has shouldered it. Jesus has been crushed under the weight of it. He has borne it all for us. 
This is what he's doing for us here in this moment. Unlike Adam, he's fulfilling and obeying God the Father. Nevertheless, not what I will, he says, but what you will be done. The weight of sin was crushing Jesus' soul. Because he knew what was coming. The full brunt of God's wrath for iniquity was going to be poured out on him on that cross. He knew that. Again, keep in your minds. Not just all of the sins of all the souls up to that point. This roughly, let's say he lived 33 years. This is the year 33 AD. Not just from that point back. He's not just atoning for all of those sins. He's atoning for all the sins up to history in mankind's history even now. Right now in 2020. He's paid for all of them. And guess what? If the world is able to exist a thousand more years. He has paid for all of those sins too. He's paid for every sin that could possibly be committed. Is bought and paid for by Jesus' blood. He is carrying that weight on his shoulders. It's a way that we can uh, not even rightly understand, not even rightly comprehend. And Jesus' soul is being crushed by it. Such is why in the other Gospels we we have recorded for us the fact that he is sweating as though it was drops of blood on the ground. Because he's being crushed by the weight of sin that he's been made to carry. And guess, guess what the apostles are doing? This is, by the way, verse 37. This is how I know that the apostles are oblivious to what's happening all around them. Jesus is praying, bearing his soul to God the Father. And look what happens. Then verse 37. Then he came and found them sleeping. They can't even keep their eyes open. Jesus says, tell them to watch and pray. And they're sleeping. They're tired. Peter and John are likely the ones that had gone just a, a few hours earlier and prepared the Passover. They were the ones that had worked all day to make sure that this meal was going to be a, a good one for Jesus as he has rightly told them to do. And so they've been working all day. Now they're tired. We can't keep our eyes open, Jesus. They had little idea what was going on. Little did they know that Jesus was in that garden, not just to pray, but to pray For God's will as he is bearing the weight of the world's sins. That Jesus is praying as he's preparing himself for his passion and his death. Which were only a mere hours away. So he urges them. Then he came and found them, verse 37, sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he goes back to pray again and watch. Again, he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again. For their eyes were heavy and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Is It, it is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. They can't even keep their eyes open. Peter, James, and John are there. They can't even keep their eyelids open for long enough. Natalie will testify to the fact that sometimes when I get sleepy, I can't keep my eyes open. (laughs) 
My eyelids are like heavy lead weights. I close them and I can fall asleep like that. She gets mad at me because I can fall asleep within like five seconds. Maybe not. That's a hyperbole. But I can fall asleep really fast. She gets mad at me. Not, not really mad, but she gets frustrated with me because she's laying there for hours trying to fall asleep, thinking about falling asleep. And I'm already cutting Z's for several hours by that point. Anyways, regardless, I can feel all that to say this. I can feel for the apostles. I know what it means to not be able to keep your eyes open. You're trying to just get through that movie that you put in that you were so thankful that you're able to watch a movie with your, with your bride and you, you can't. Your eyes are just too heavy. I, I feel for the apostles. And Jesus comes out and says, can you not even keep your eyes open? Even while I'm being betrayed? Because see, he says, now the hour is here. The hour is here. Lotus verse 42. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, he was, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer, who had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him. And said, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. And then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Here is the scene of Jesus' most intense trial. He being delivered up into the hands of his accusers. But what stands out to me in this scene is just the fact that Jesus is so calm and poised in the face of being betrayed. Such to the fact, again, look at verse 42. That he knows that he is being betrayed into the hands of those who want to seize him and kill him. And he says, rise, let us be going out. Let us go out and meet my traitor. Let's go out and I am going to surrender myself to them. See, Jesus, he is always in control, even of this moment. So this is why he is almost, uh, he's almost kind of frustrated. And he actually, uh, you can, these words in verses 48 and 49... You have to read them sort of like he's mocking them with a little bit of joking ridicule. You've come out to me with swords and clubs. You could have taken me any single day while I was in the temple just a few short days ago. If you really wanted to capture me, I was right there. And now you're coming at me as if I'm like a robber or something. As if I'm going to put up a fight. And see Jesus here. He walks out and willingly meets his captors. He willingly surrenders himself to them. And I think this is what the apostles just could not understand. It's such as why they forsake him and they run away. Here, this is the fulfillment of the scandalization of Jesus' followers. He is seized, he is taken, and they scatter. They are scandalized. Why? 
Because again, they see this moment as I think we would see it. They see it just as this. They don't see it as a fulfillment of scriptures as Jesus has already said. They see it as what? Their teacher is being seized by a violent mob with cruel force. He's being taken away, taken into custody. And who knows what they're going to do with him then. So this is why Peter draws his sword. He is protecting his Lord. From what he thinks is not a fulfillment of the kingdom, but is actually a hindrance to the kingdom. See, here in this moment, the apostles aren't seeing this as the promised fulfillment of God's kingdom on earth. They see this as God's kingdom being thwarted, being hindered, being stopped. Jesus is captured. Jesus is taken. There's no way that everything that he has promised and said could come about. Their hopes are dashed in this moment. Because Jesus is in handcuffs. That doesn't inspire hope. It actually crushes their dreams of living in the kingdom of God on this earth. As living as leaders in the messianic reign of their Messiah. It's the crushing and the crumbling of all that they had come to believe in. Is here seen as Jesus is in chains. Jesus didn't see it that way. Notice he comes out to meet them. He doesn't need to be taken by force. By force, Jesus lets this happen. He surrenders himself to them. Why? Verse 49 again. So that the scriptures must be fulfilled. You see, the scandal of this moment is that the God of the universe is letting himself be bound and taken away. They don't take him as though they are taking a common criminal. Jesus is letting himself be taken. Jesus is letting himself be led away. Why? So the scriptures could be fulfilled. And all of what God has promised and said could come to fruition. But next let's move to verse 53. The denial and the trial. And here we move to the the tribunal. Which is just a scene of those who are wanting to kill Jesus. Trying to decide how to do that. Things are going to pick up now. Things are going to move at a more rapid pace in Mark's gospel. Because now there's really no turning back. Judas has gone out. He has betrayed his Lord. And now things are set in motion. Which cannot be stopped from being in motion. Verse 53, and they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Verse 54, uh, just to pause for a moment. Verse 54 is one of the most interesting verses, I think, in this passage. Because if you ever wanted sort of evidence... Of the fact that it was mainly Peter as the primary source of this gospel. I think this verse is a key verse to look to. We said at the beginning that Mark traditionally has been linked to the Apostle Peter. And the fact that either it, has been, uh, it was either rec- written and recorded obviously through the power of the Holy Spirit. But through Peter either preaching or relaying these details to Mark as his apprentice. And you can see that right here in verse 54. It reads as Peter is going back to that moment. 
It reads as Peter is reminiscing on that time when he followed Jesus secretly and warmed himself by the fire, even as his soul is burgeoning with so much scandal and unrest. You can see Peter going back to that moment. That moment of uncertainty, that moment of not really knowing what to do. He kind of wants to see what they're going to do to his Lord, but he doesn't really know how to react, how to think, how to respond, what to say. And here they take Jesus away. And these verses, verses 55 through 65, relate to us, I would like to say, probably the most corrupt trial that has ever happened on the face of this planet. (laughs) Literally, you can read these verses, and there's so much corruption and collusion and not due process. There's so much injustice right here in these verses. It's amazing. Everything about this trial was illegal, by the way. We noticed in verse 53 that the the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, the Sanhedrin, that big council, uh, that body that has been planning and conspiring against Jesus, uh, they are convening and assembling here at night, which was illegal. It prevented them. Laws in the day prevented them from ever uh, assembling at night. And here they're assembling in a way in which they're not actually looking for justice. They have an end game in mind. They're assembling for a certain purpose. Verse 53. No, excuse me, verse 55. Now the chief priests and all the councils sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They're looking for answers. They're looking for ways that they can pin blame on Jesus. But notice, again, they found none, it says in verse 55. They're looking for something that they can stick to him. That way they can wash their hands and turn him over to Rome and be like, we had nothing to do with him. He is a criminal. He needed to be put to death. They're looking for something that they can pin on him. And see, this is what is almost kind of funny to me. Because we've noticed from the beginning, remember in Mark 3. Mark 3, they've been planning and conspiring against Jesus. How to put him to death. And here we are. A few hours from when that would happen. And they have no plan. They're kind of just making this up as they go. They don't really have a plan. Because they've been trying to pin something on Jesus. But as Jesus is God and man. He is perfectly sinless. He is completely righteous. Without any flaw in him. There's nothing that they can pin on him for. To put him to death. So they have no plan really. They have Jesus in custody for no apparent reason. So now they're, they're, they're grasping at straws, so to speak. They're trying to grab anything, anything that they can just cling to and stick to him, that they can just put him to death for something. Look at the verses. Look at the words. Now the chief priests and all the council saw testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree Then some rose up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands. And within three days, I will build another made without hands, which, by the way, is not an accurate quote. You can read John chapter two, verse 19. And this quote is uh, very much mistaken. But not even then, back in verse 59, did their testimony agree. You can sense the chaos. 
People are saying this about Jesus. People are saying that about Jesus. Nothing is coming together. They have nothing to pin on him. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus saying, do you answer nothing? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, Jesus, kept silent and answered nothing. And again, the high priest asked him saying, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Here, at the end, what did they charge him with? Blasphemy. They charge him with blasphemy. And notice how they examine him. This isn't uh, the first occurrence of someone saying he's the Messiah. This has happened before. And so how do they judge him? Normally there would be a due examination and due process. But notice how they begin to examine him. Then verse 65. Then some began to spit on him. And to blindfold him. And to beat him. And to say prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Their examination is to punch him in the face. And then say now tell us who punched you. That will tell us who and really if you are the Messiah. They're using him as a pawn. As a plaything. They're using him literally as a punching bag. Jesus, tell us, are you really the Messiah? And they're striking him in the face. And here in this courtroom, this is what Jesus is enduring. This is the scandalous prelude to the cross. That Jesus himself, God in the flesh, is being punched in the face for being who he said he was the whole time. There's no blasphemy. There's no uh, erroneous statement by Jesus. He has always been who he said he is. The Messiah. God in the flesh. And here he's enduring the pummeling for being exactly who he said he was. The Christ. The sad corruption of the scene. It leads us to the last scene. Let me hasten and move so I can finish. Because in verses 66 through the end of the chapter, we have the betrayal. Here is the final movement in this prelude to the cross, which is just full of scandal. As we noted in verse 54, Peter has followed this procession of Jesus and all of these guards and this mob back to the Sanhedrin court. And there he's spying on these events sort of from the outskirts, from the shadows. And we return to that scene in verse 66. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. I love Peter's response. Because you know he's guilty when he's trying to go over and above his denial. If you have kids, I'm sure you're familiar with that. You know they're guilty when they like overextend and overexaggerate their denial. No, it wasn't me. I have no idea what you're even talking about. But what are you? Are you speaking English? <laughs> and that's sort of what Peter is saying here in this moment. I literally have no idea what you're saying to me. Je- Jesus who? What? 
He's denying his Lord. And as Mark records, a rooster crows. And then in verse 69, and the servant girl saw him again. And began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. He's exposed again. Publicly, verse 70 again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear. I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time, the rooster crowed. And then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. This scene is to me one of the saddest scenes in scripture. Peter here denying knowing his Lord. Denying having any relationship to him. Any connection to him. I have never known this man Jesus that you speak of. And I never want to know him. I don't want to associate myself with this blasphemous criminal. Those are the words of Jesus, of Peter's denial. And imagine, imagine what this moment must have been like for Peter. He sees his Lord taken away. He, he sees himself as a failure for having lived up to what he had so enthusiastically said just a few hours ago. That he would follow you into death. And he fails on that part. And then he denies Jesus here three times in a row. And the rooster crows. And then he knows. Those words come flooding back into his head. About how Jesus had said to him. You will deny me three times. The outrage and the scandal will be so great. That you will reject and disown me. And I imagine Peter falling to his knees. Devastated and crushed. How could I ever be so self-confident? How could I ever be so self-righteous? And the anvil of guilt surely fell on him. For denying his Lord. For denying his Savior. And this is the scandalous prelude of the cross. Jesus the Savior Who has always been who he has said he is. God in the flesh. Who has done and spoken nothing but grace and truth. As the apostle. As the gospel of John records for us. And here he is forsaken. And forgotten. And betrayed by those closest to him. And even still Jesus stands in this courtroom. For his friends that forsook him. He stands in this courtroom for you and for me, silently enduring being decked in the face by cowardly councilmen who want to just put him to death. And he subjects himself to being spit upon and to being slandered and to being sweared at. And he endures all untold amounts of beatings for you and for me. You see, when I read... These verses, like I said at the beginning, I see myself in Peter. And I think about those times when perhaps maybe not outwardly and vocally, 
But with my actions and with my thoughts, I've denied Jesus. I think about those times when I'm surrounded by those who don't know Jesus and I too likewise join the chorus, I don't know him either. And I don't stand up for my Lord. And I'm made to weep. When I think about all the opportunities that have been presented to me. And I have not stood up for Jesus. I've denied him. And I think like Peter. And yet I'm given the same encouragement. Yet at the same time from this passage. That what? That even though we deny him. He does not deny us. That even though we forsake him, he never forsakes us. He stands in the same place, silently in that courtroom, enduring the beatings we should have gotten, enduring the slander that we deserve, enduring the spit that should have been upon our faces. God is taking that for us. Even for those who are denying him and rejecting him and forsaking him. He is enduring it for you and for me. Why? Because he is the savior. The savior who takes our sins onto himself. The savior of the world. This is what he has done for you and for me. This is the good news. That is in the scandalous prelude to the cross. That Jesus subjects himself to what he did not deserve. Why? So that we could be partakers of what we do not deserve. Righteousness. Salvation for free. Let us pray.